Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. Hi, I'm Ryan Pack, and this is Soundtrack Your Life. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And you can follow us on Instagram at SoundtrackCast and on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your. You can also support the podcast by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash SoundtrackCast or through Anchor. Our guest today is award-winning composer David Rosen. He is also the host of the Piecing It Together podcast, and they come out with episodes every week. So welcome, David. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This, uh, this is going to be fun. Yeah, today we are going to talk about the 2014 Alex Garland film Ex Machina. Oh, yeah. So, David, why are we talking about Ex Machina today? Oh, there's so many scores that we could have picked from, you know, just uh, recent ones, classics, you know, anything in between. And this score, though, is one from the last decade that I feel has just been super influential on me and my sound. And so I just thought it would be the one to pick to sit and talk about for a while. Uh, I, I think that it does so many interesting things. And I love Alex Garland's work. And uh, I love these composers' work, Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow. And uh, just there's so much interesting stuff happening on this score. And so I thought it would be a good one to talk about. Yeah, and for listeners, if you find the name Jeff Barrow to be familiar, he's also the principal songwriter of Portishead, right? Right, right, absolutely. So did you know of Salisbury and Barrow's work before this film, or is this kind of how you got into them? This is definitely how I got into them. And as much as I uh, have really loved everything from Portishead that I've ever heard, I also have never dug into their albums. So uh, just as a name, I didn't realize at first that that he was from Portishead. I only found that out later after after looking up, you know, what other stuff you know either of these two were involved in uh but definitely as far as films are concerned um the first time i heard of them was during this particular score and then continuing to hear more of their work especially with alex garland's uh you know follow-up feature uh, annihilation and then series devs yeah they seem to be his go-to composers now yeah and, and it's definitely, they have a style for sure. I mean, that, that's one thing. And I, I, you know, I guess there's two different schools of thought, whether or not it's better to be, you know, not that they're not well-rounded or anything. They, they certainly have a, a range to what they do, but whether you're somebody who does like a lot of different stuff or someone who you just know, like, oh, they're scoring it, you're, you're going to get something creepy and dark and it's going to, you know, it's going to really set a a mood, so to speak. Right. Yeah. I think I've read an interview with them on this website called The Quiet Us. And I think they, and they talk about John Carpenter quite a bit. And I think you can Mm. see that in, in their music a little bit with the creepiness. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean, talk about, uh, inspirations like John Carpenter is such a huge inspiration for me as well. And like, yeah. And you know, I, I know when talking about film score again, you know, two, you know, schools of thought, I mean, some people want more melodic, more, you know, traditional film score type music. Some people are okay with more electronic type stuff. And I, I certainly come from a background of electronic music composition. And so when I hear uh, electronic music in film scores, you know, going back to John Carpenter or, or other kinds of more recent uh, artists that do that, you know, I, to me, I find that just hugely inspiring. And I think that there's just so many different kinds of things you could get out of that. But especially in, you know, films that are meant to leave you unsettled, uh, there's just such a such a wide range you could get into when you're dealing with synth-based scores like this um, versus, you know, when, when you're doing more traditional scores in these kinds of genres, uh, you know, you're going to get a lot of dissonant strings and that's kind of where you go versus with, uh, with a bunch of synths, you can do some really wild stuff. Yeah. So I read that Ben Salisbury also comes from like a kind of more traditional score background. He did a lot of like David Attenborough documentaries. And um, mm. so at least in 2012, when they first started working to, like, together, he would want to throw in some, you know, kind of melodic strings and Jeff Barrow would, um, basically shoot him down every time. <laughs> yeah, that, that's you. You wonder almost like, uh, you know, you, you have to assume Alex Garland knows what he's getting himself into, and probably there's a lot of conversations involved. But you almost wonder like, uh, you know, you hire this guy, and you're like, um, you know, okay, so let's see what you got for my film, and and you think maybe it's going to be something more, you know, traditional, and then all of a sudden you get these creepy, weird synth you know, just, you know, grinding, uh, synth lines and arpeggiations and all that. And it's just, uh, you're like, Oh wow. Okay. I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. And, and I, and I feel like with this film, especially kind of the setting that it's in, it's kind of, it kind of works better to have less, you know, less is more, mm-hmm. you know, you're kind of isolated Absolutely. in this compound. And if you have, you know, a, a 60 person orchestra, playing something that's going to completely take you out of the uh, atmosphere that Alex Garland's trying to create. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, not to like jump around or anything like that, but one of my favorite things about um, the score, this is a great score to listen to on its own. I mean, it's just really beautiful music, but in the way that it's used within the film, um, I, I love how it kind of blends into the uh, ambient sound of the compound and like the buzzing and whirring of, of, of electronics in the walls and stuff like that. And, you know, it's kind of uh, where the sound design ends and the score begins sometimes is very blurred. And I think that just, you know, really it's disorienting in a good way for a film like this. Yeah, absolutely. Like when I first started listening to the music, because I knew who Jeff Barrow was, I think I was expecting a little bit more. Mm. But, um, I mean, it's very effective in how it's used, and I think that's because, I, you know, he is a master at his craft, and he understands atmosphere. Like, I think Portishead is very good at being kind of unsettling, yeah. but also kind of pretty at the same mm -hmm. time. 
Yes, exactly. And that's what this is, unsettling but pretty at the same time. By looking into the soundtrack, this was the first time I was aware that he had moved into um, scoring films. And, Mm. you know, with him and, you know, Trent Reznor and um, a lot of these other musicians that kind of come from more of a, I guess, rock background. Yeah. I was wondering if, you know, this was kind of a trend that had come up recently over the past, I don't know, 15 years or so, or if it was just, I'm more aware of who's composing soundtracks now. And that's why it feels like there's a lot more, but I believe in this interview, Barrow said that, or Ben Salisbury said that, you know, directors are looking more to musician from just background than your traditional Hans Zimmer bombast. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is a really good question because, you know, at, at one, one end, we maybe just aren't aware of where some of these names came from. I mean, of course, Danny Elfman was, you know, from the world of rock music, um, before, before getting into, composing. So, I mean, there's certainly examples, um, but at the same time, it does seem like it's happening a lot now with Trent Reznor, uh, with, um, uh, his name's escaping me right now, but from Radiohead. Uh, Johnny Greenwood. Having, yeah, Johnny Greenwood. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot more of this uh, lately. There was a, a great indie earlier this year, uh, Come True, uh, the, the director who records music under the name Pilot Priest, uh, also did the music for the film. And so, yeah, I mean, it, these, uh, you know, traditionally, you know, bands like artists or whatever uh, are now scoring a lot of a lot of films. And I think it makes sense from the musician point of view, too, especially with the changing music business. And, you know, it's it's not exactly easy to make a, a living as an artist anymore as far as like just putting albums out and, you know, them making money or anything like that. So I think it makes sense for artists to try to get into film scoring. Yeah, I'm, I think One O Tricks Point Never is another big name. Oh, yeah. Um, he's done a lot of work with the Sad, Sad V Brothers. Yeah, absolutely. I love I love those two scores uh, that that they did with uh, with the Safties. Oh, Safties. Yeah, I always get that uh, last name messed up. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when he's talking about how you know a lot of these you know non traditional composers have been coming up, it's because you know, and he points to Drive and Trent Reznor specifically. He says they point to this growing unease. <laughs> And I think directors are becoming more comfortable with, you know, not having just like a traditional John Williams score, not to dismiss John Williams completely. They, you know, make sure that they're not here to draw a line in the sand or anything. But sure. You know, this is uh, Ben Salisbury's quote. Um, You know, you have a lot of these traditional scores. They're very boring. You can have an orchestra of a thousand. You can have fucking cannons firing just doesn't have the impact that it used to. Yeah. And then stripping stuff away, doing something on a kazoo and a ukulele is way more arresting than a hundred people sighing away on violins. (laughs) Yeah, that's a, uh, that's definitely a good quote there. And you know, it's funny because, you know, me being a, uh, you know, a more synth based uh, score composer, 
uh, I, I'm certainly not against a more traditional score. I mean, my my favorite score. We actually have a, a, a top ten scores of 2021 episode coming out, and my my favorite score of 2021 was Harry Gregson Williams' The Last Duel, and I mean that's as just old school epic score as you can get. Um, and there's certainly a place for it, like in a movie like that, but there's just nothing wrong with this kind of score either. And so, you know, I think some people maybe need to let go a little bit of tradition, uh, when it comes to scoring a film and accept that, you know, sometimes these kind of scores really have a place, especially, uh, in films that feel, you know, new and feel exciting and fresh. Yeah. I think films that are dealing with technology, you know, including the social network, mm-hmm. which I think is probably the most well-known Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross score. You sure. know, I feel like those films don't have a place for more traditional sounding scores because the subject matter is non-traditional. Yeah, absolutely. That that film just would not have worked with a more uh, traditional classical score. Uh it it would have it would have almost made the whole thing just feel like Oscar bait probably you know and, and it, rather than being the like kind of raw and cutting uh film that it is yeah it an orchestra would be fine if it was like a true biopic but since you know the social ne- network is dealing with like these multiple lawsuits that are going on and kind of telling mm-hmm. his story through these lawsuits it's you know a non-traditional way of telling his story and therefore yeah. it required a non-traditional score to kind of accompany that yeah and by the way that is uh also one of my favorite scores of the last couple decades i mean who doesn't love that score yeah and it's also one of those scores where like if you're really familiar with trent Reznor, it makes sense but if you only know like the nine inch nails radio songs you're like oh this is what not exactly what i was expecting yeah for sure (laughs) And it's weird that I keep on kind of falling into this trap of finding out, you know, this guy that I like in the muse in the traditional like rock world is scoring a film, and then I listen to the score and I go, "Oh, this is a little bit different than what I was expecting." And I don't mm-hmm. know why I keep on like tricking myself or falling into that trap, like, "Oh, Jeff Barrow worked on this," and then I'll listen to it and be like, "Oh, this doesn't really sound like Portishead," right? And I don't know why I keep on falling yeah. into that trap because I, I should know better. Like Johnny Greenwood scores don't necessarily sound like Radiohead songs. Totally. Yeah. And yeah, that is something that we should just, uh, we should know better. But I, I think it just, you know, I think we were, it, it's just part of life to kind of put things in the boxes and not even realize that we're doing it sometimes. Yeah. Like if I listen to the Phantom Thread score, I'm not like, oh, this sounds like a guy from Radiohead. Yeah. <laughs> I mean obviously they're clearly talented people and that's where they why they're able to make this transition, but for some reason I just, just always like, oh, cool, like may I, I blame explosions in the sky because I feel like their Friday Night Light soundtrack just sounds like a bunch of explosions in the sky songs. Fair. Yeah. That <laughs> that's definitely fair. Like I think they're the one maybe the one crossover where they just basically did what they were already doing. Mm-hmm. But still not, not traditional. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Would you consider this an ambient score? I think that's how it's described in a lot of articles. I I would say so, even though it, you know, it certainly uh, builds to things at times. But I would say the majority of it is certainly more a- atmospheric and and ambient. I know, like the first piece w- within it, the the Turing test. I mean, you don't even really realize that music's happening for the first like minute or two before like things really start to build up. And uh, so, yeah, things definitely start off much more ambient, and it, it kind of grows and falls, grows and falls uh, throughout throughout the entire score. And so, we, we get a lot of very ambient uh, moments. And so, out of the soundtracks that you know we we're discussing about covering for this episode, uh, you picked this one because it has a huge impact on um, some of the work you've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I when when I have been kind of like building this career for myself, composing music for film, and also my albums that I put out under my name, David Rosen. Um, definitely this score has been just a really huge influence on me. Um, Certainly with my film work, uh, I I actually just last year released a soundtrack album for a film called The Dissection Table. And that's a film that's not available yet, but the director gave me the go ahead to uh, put it out as a soundtrack for now. And that score, you know, I had a lot of this in my head when I was working on it. One one moment in the film in particular, and I mean, I, you know, this film's already, you know, over 10 years old. Hopefully we're not spoiling anything for anyone. But uh, when a certain character uh, kind of peels her face down and it, it's just like a really kind of shocking reveal that you kind of knew it was coming. But at the same time, it's just uh, kind of horrifying the way it happens, the way that those synths just like swirl and just lots of like really dissonant uh, synth stuff all kind of grinding together that was like a big big um influence on the kind of direction i was going for with the score for the dissection table and uh kind of kind of blending just how beautiful synth based scores can be with how horrifying they could be i definitely wanted it to be a little of both of those things at the same time which makes for uh a lot of musical stuff happening, but it really, uh, it really kind of shows just how much you can do with that. Yeah. That scene is definitely one of the standout scenes in the film. And you're right. I can, I kind of knew it was coming, but at the same time mm-hmm. to actually see it on screen and with that music, yeah. it's just anxiety inducing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What, one of my favorite things about this score is, uh, you, you really like kind of feel it in your gut. You know, it's like it, it just you feel it like almost like a sick feeling in your stomach when you hear the score. And I, I think that fits so beautifully with the uh, the themes of the movie, because with with the idea of uh, this this AI based robot, basically, uh, you know, and, and trying to um, uh, have it prove that it that it's so lifelike that you can't tell the difference kind of gets you into that uncanny valley territory, which uncanny valley you know kind of creates a feeling of like that sickness in the pit of your stomach because it just it's something that's just not real but it just feels so real and human-like but it's just you just know it's not and it just 
your wires kind of cross inside and it just makes you just not feel right. And uh, I feel like the score does that too. <laughs> so that that's like a really powerful thing for, for a score to be able to do. And uh, there's no better film for that to happen uh, in than a film like Ex Machina where that's like literally the point of the movie. Right. There's a big music video director named Chris Cunningham. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, his work, but mm-hmm. he's done videos from you know apex twin to madonna um mm-hmm. he's done a lot of videos um he's also done a couple portis has videos which is kind of interesting since jeff barrow has worked with him and now alex garland but i, I kind of sure. get the same sort of feeling from watching his videos to watching you know ex machina where the effects are just so realistic but also creepy at the same time I think, sure. I think Cunningham actually helped out um, with AI with some of the uh, digital effects for for that oh, film. Nice. So I feel like there's kind of a parallel there. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think he did a video for Bjork. Okay. I think it's for All is Full of Love. And I think it has like... I'm not sure if I'm getting the videos mixed up, but I think it has a similar sort of feel as as this film. Okay, yeah. Well, those Apex uh, Twin videos are really cool. So I, you know, I'm sure uh, a, a lot of this influence kind of comes from that same kind of a place. Yeah, where he's got like robots falling in love and. Hmm. <laughs> oh yeah. One one thing I found interesting that I didn't realize uh, until like uh, just a couple of days ago, and I I don't really know too much about this aspect of the score, uh, but the track Bunsen Burner, which is actually from Cuts, which I don't I don't know anything about. Did you find anything about Cuts? I did not. Yeah, because it seems to be almost like the basis for the more uh, guitar-based, melodic kind of parts of the score. Um, almost like they, they took that uh, existing piece and built that idea into some of the other segments of the score. Um, and I don't know, that that's just kind of interesting. It's like a, a whole separate uh, credit, I guess, that can be given to the direction that the score went. I'm wondering if maybe it was almost like a uh, like a temp track or something that Alex Garland was already like interested in, and so they were able to kind of synthesize that into the overall score. Oh, that's interesting. I, I believe Johnny Greenwood did something similar with uh, "There Will Be Blood," like as a previously mm. written piece of music that he had debuted at some sort of you know one-off orchestral thing, and then he kind of used that to kind of build the score around. And I think that's why There Will Be Blood couldn't be nominated for for like the Oscar for Best Original Score because it wasn't technically original. Right, right. Yeah, there's some existing stuff there. And yeah, that there's all kinds of weird uh, uh, rules like that when, when it comes to the Oscars. So it's possible that, you know, Barrow and Salisbury just had it laying around and... Sure. Yeah, because they've been working together since I believe 2012. Yeah, it looks like they because uh, they also did um, Free Fire and um, I, I believe they did uh, some other TV work as well. Uh, aside from um, 
Alex Garland show devs, but uh, I, I, I'm not sure exactly how many other projects they did together. Yeah, they did something called Drock in 2010. And I know that, and I believe that's why they. I found this interview from them in 2012. Okay. Oh, yeah, they did uh, Hannah, the, the TV series Hannah. That was really good, too. But yeah, I mean, as far as the Alex Garland ones, I mean, Annihilation, that end scene of Annihilation, the music in that is so insane. Um, that's some of the most creative, weird electronic score that I've heard in years. I haven't seen Annihilation yet, but I want to see it now that I know that I, Alex Garland was behind it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Also happens to be the first episode of Piecing It Together, by the way. I'll have to also check that out. Yeah. I've been trying to catch up on episodes of your show and mm-hmm. it's been a little intimidating because I I have a bit I have a film background, um I have a film degree, and just some of these uh puzzle pieces that I'm hearing people pull from from uh their their, you know, memory bank, I'm like, oh man, I've I've got some huge gaps in like my film history knowledge. <laughs> Oh, nobody feels that way more than me. Trust me. Whenever my guests bring up movies that I haven't seen and I'm like, oh, yeah, aren't I supposed to be the host of this show? But uh, <laughs> maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll get you on piecing it together. One of these yeah, days. I got to get my my uh, film muscle memory back up to speed. Yeah. Get a little marathon going first and then we'll get you on. But, you know, uh, kind of stealing a little bit from your show, I've definitely get like a frankenstein sort of feel from ex machina obviously like a futuristic frankenstein sure sure absolutely definitely frankenstein is is part of the uh the dna of this project of of creating this thing making this life and and what that means and the responsibility that comes along with it uh yeah absolutely um also i i feel like personally one, one thing that I love so much is, uh, it's not a, a direct connection, but the loose connections between this and the Alien films, uh, that specifically uh, Ridley Scott's prequels, which came after, but then also with his original first Alien movie, but uh, just dealing with, with those um, uh, synthetic uh, characters, the uh, androids, and... Um, you know, especially when we get to later on, I would say Ex Machina actually was the inspiration in a way for those an, uh, alien prequels um, because of just just how angry <laughs> the, the David Android character is uh, with, with his creator. And that I, I think a lot of that uh, is paralleled so well here with Ex Machina. The, the two of them really deal with that issue very well. Right. And I remember there's, a, I don't know the exact line, but it's when um, Nathan and Caleb are talking. I think it's after the first or second meeting with with Ava. And Caleb mentioned something about, you know, playing God. And then mm-hmm. Nathan kind of twists it into, you know, this compliment. <laughs> and Caleb's yeah. like, no, that's <laughs> not what I said. <laughs> yeah by the way oscar isaac just amazing he's so good in this and, and such a monster just an awful awful person but uh just incredible to yeah, watch awful but kind of charismatic at the same time like the most dangerous kind of awful that you can be yeah <laughs> absolutely you know he sells some of his points particularly well you know like when he tells caleb like 
so what? You were chosen. Isn't that better than being lucky? Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, it, it's hard to argue with him at certain certain aspects of, of what he's doing and what he's saying. But uh, at the same time, it's just like this this freaking guy, you know? But uh, yeah, it really makes you wonder what is going on in certain research facilities uh, with some of these just insanely wealthy and insanely... Uh, you know, they're they're able to like do anything they want without any kind of oversight whatsoever. It's uh, it's creepy for sure. Right, and then the intense paranoia and, mm-hmm. and the uh, almost hilarious alcoholism in the film. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. <laughs> oh, so you had a party last night? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, he just stares at him. He's like, "What? What party?" <laughs> the score is kind of sparse at times so like when caleb can't sleep and he turns on the tv and the tv is actually just security footage um it kind mm-hmm. of adds to that <laughs> creepiness of what's going on absolutely yeah it's it you know it's always so important to know um as a composer when when to let things be silent and uh this film definitely uh understands that and and doesn't overdo it as big as a score can get at, at times when uh things are allowed to get like really dark and and really dirty like like uh, i know the track uh, hacking cutting from the score uh when there's just some like really just filthy like arp synth you know stuff going on uh and, and then of course when like some of the guitar elements start to come in and so it, it gets it gets bigger at times and then especially when like some of those synths are creating dissonance between the two different uh you know two different synth sounds um it, it definitely gives it the opportunity to grow but it really knows how to use the silence as well which is so important and like we were talking earlier about um you know this being like a closed off compound you know you you don't really want it to uh be overtaken by sound you want to you want to feel the silence of that and and like the claustrophobia of it so uh david what are some of the other soundtracks apart from the ex machina um soundtrack that you find inspiring for yourself definitely those softy brother uh scores that that you uh mentioned earlier um Good time and uncut gems. Uh, both of those are are definitely something that I I really love from recent times. Um, going a little bit further back, I've always been a big Clint Mansell fan. Um, his his stuff that he's done with Darren Aronofsky and uh, also Moon. Um, th- those are some scores that just uh, really really have spoken to me and and to what I want to kind of accomplish when I'm working on music for something. And, you know, I mean, we already talked about Trent Reznor, but he, he's been a huge uh, inspiration in all my music. Um, I Even though it, it's funny because my music, uh, it, I, you know, I kind of split my time between these albums of instrumental music that kind of fall somewhere between electronica and new age and alternative rock. And it is kind of just a whole blend of things. And then my film scoring work is you know, it's still a film score. It's not a uh, rock songs or anything like that. But I, my biggest in, inspirations do tend to come from like the instrumental portions of a lot of alternative rock songs, like stuff like The Cure and Depeche Mode and stuff like that. 
parts where the music is allowed to grow into like big instrumental sections, I kind of take a lot of cues from stuff like that. Yeah, I can definitely hear that in your music. Awesome. Yeah, I was listening to the dissection table kind of, I guess, uh, in tandem with listening to the Ex Machina of soundtrack because, you know, you had kind of mentioned how it's very influential in your work. And I wouldn't say, you know, and you're not, I'm not saying that, you know, I can hear it all over your work, but I can definitely, I can definitely tell that you've heard the Ex Machina soundtrack. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it it's there, I think. Um and yeah, I I feel like when I uh when I'm working on things, I definitely do try to um I I kind of wear my influences on my sleeve, I think. Uh just a kind of funny connection between um well, no tricks point never and Jeff Barrow is on the newest album from the weekend that's executive produced by Wano Tricks Point Never. And then mm. when the weekend uh, released his first solo album, there was a huge controversy that one of his singles was ripping off of Portishead's Machine Gun. Okay. And um, I believe the weekend was like, oh, it's you know kind of like a light interpolation of it. And Jeff Barrow mm. basically was like, I have a letter of you asking for permission for the sample. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny you know i i really like the weekend i i haven't listened to any of his albums yet but like all the songs i've heard are really good i i gotta listen to that new album i i hear it's so freaking awesome yeah i haven't heard it yet i've heard great things about it and i heard the one oh tricks point never influence is definitely sure all over the i mean he's the executive producer and you're not going to get yeah. that credit by just you know plinking a couple keys and calling it a day yeah 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 no that that their their uh you know collaboration there that really makes me want to check that album out soon yeah i'm more excited about that than when i heard that he was collaborating with daft punk you know five or six yeah that yeah that that's certainly a uh more up my you know my speed when it when it uh comes to what you know in popular music what would excite me yeah, he did a great job on that um, James Blake album. Now that I haven't, I haven't heard either. It wasn't the most recent one; it was the last one. But um, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that things are going well for him. Yeah, it's it's uh, great that it's happening on both of the the film score and popular music side for him. Sure. Are you working on any other film scores coming up? So I am going to be working on a film uh, probably in about a month or two, actually, uh, where we've been going back and forth, uh, the director and myself, uh, about the direction of it while they're uh, getting the, the first edit done. Um, so I'm really excited to dig into that. Um, I haven't worked on anything this year yet. Well, I guess it's still January. <laughs> I, I work on all. I work on a lot of stuff. That seems like a long time, one month. But uh, hey, I, I'm excited to get to work on that. Though I'll actually be splitting composing duties with another composer, actually a, a friend of mine. So um, that's going to be interesting. I've never done that before. Uh, you know, splitting work on one score with somebody. So that's going to be an interesting experience. 
Um, and then I have a, uh, a friend who I already have started working on music. It was going to originally be a short film and, and they're expanding it to a feature. Um, and so that, I don't know how long it's going to take till that gets to me, but, um, that is on the horizon as well. So definitely have those two, um, you know, on the horizon coming up. And in the meantime, just working on uh, more music for my next album. I'm actually working on three albums at the same time right now, which is ridiculous. But yeah, it's, you know, during the pandemic, I started a lot of new tracks. And so I've got so much to just kind of like go back to and start like finishing and turning into full songs. And so uh, they're kind of shaping up to be two of them are, are like kind of different themes. So they'll be like very differently themed albums. Um, but then the third thing is going to be a compilation of some music from various short films I've worked on over the years. So uh, so th- that'll be more of like just a compilation type thing. But I'm, I'm excited because, you know, it's not always, you know, not everybody checks out short films and, and it's awesome to work on them. It's always super rewarding. But, uh, you know, it's it's it'll be cool to get that music out in a way that more people will check it out. Oh, very cool. Uh, so when you're composing music for a short film or a feature, do you get like a like how much of the film do they give you to work to, you know, start working? Ideally, all of it. And it's already at a like locked cut. Um, it doesn't always work out that way, <laughs> but you know, whenever possible, I do request that because, you know, once you really get into like the nitty gritty of it and things are like perfectly timed to the moments in the film and everything, it's like, if then they're going to go and, you know, change things around on you and you got to recontextualize it all, it just kind of makes things a little bit of a mess. So ideally it's all there, uh, when I actually sit down to start working, but, uh, yeah, a little of everything though. Um, sometimes I'll even just start on ideas beforehand, just based off of either clips or maybe the script or just talking with the director. Uh, so it really, it really just depends, but, um, you know, it, it, it's best when you have the whole film, you could sit down with and watch and get an idea of exactly what's going to be happening in this story. Yeah. I'm always curious, like when you're when a composer is working with someone that they haven't worked with before, like how that conversation starts, like do you send kind of demos of stuff you've done? Like what, what do they kind of ask for when they're trying to find a composer for their project? Yeah. It's always, it's always interesting because it's always completely different just based on the person and you know, the, the way that they approach things. And, uh, I, I've had just like every possible way you could think of be the way that it goes down, whether it's, you know, start scoring the film and then let's talk, you know, which is not ideal uh, to let me hear a bunch of clips from things you've worked on before that are like what my film is going to be um, to, you know, I heard your work and it sounds exactly like what I'm looking for. So just let's go ahead, let's get started. So, you know, that's always nice, but you know, it just depends on the person. Yeah. I think I was listening to an interview on, I think it was a film score podcast where the person that was uh, scoring a film kind of created a bunch of tracks that they thought the director would like. And then the director Mm -hmm. was like, no, I want something. And he gave like a bunch of like different examples. And then he had to kind of like completely shift gears 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it happens. Uh, luckily, in the many, many things I've worked on, uh, it's only happened a couple times for me uh, where, you know, what I was working on just was not fitting exactly what, what they thought it should be. And, uh, you know, I've been able to kind of, you know, get a new start going and figure something out and make it work. And so that's awesome, you know, because it's, you know, it's great to be able to collaborate with somebody and uh, it work out and for them to be happy. And, you know, 90% of the time that I've worked on something, it's, it's worked out that way. Yeah. I'm curious to hear about your experience kind of doing a collaboration score. Mm -hmm. Obviously this is on a different scale, but you know, the Harry Potter films have four different composers. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize that. That's crazy. And, you know, just for all these people to kind of try to connect and make their own thing while also yeah. realizing that John Williams scored the first one and they need to incorporate some of those elements it just seems like sure. such a interesting creative conundrum to have. It is. Yeah, that that is crazy. Yeah, I from... I mean, without like going too deep into it, since we haven't gotten started on it yet, I do know that the uh, myself and the other composer are going to be scoring two different parts of the timeline within the film. He's going to be scoring uh, flashback sequences and I'm scoring current sequences within the story of the film. So how that's going to play back and forth with one another, I... I you know, remains to be seen, but uh, we're going to figure it out. And I'm sure there'll be ways we can like tie together what we're doing. Right. Yeah. That sounds super fascinating to me. Yeah. And, and he's more of a classical piano based composer and I'm obviously more of a synth based composer. And that's why the director wanted us both to work on this because of uh, her vision for, for how that will interplay with one another. And so, uh, so yeah, I'm excited about it. It sounds like there's enough structure where it's not going to be like, there's not going to be too much like stepping on each other's toes, but I think there's going to be a little bit of a feeling out period. Yes, absolutely. Wow, that's very exciting. Yeah, and these are the stories that I love for this podcast to kind of figure out like how this stuff happens behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and I'm just i'm just excited to actually get started on it um you know and start having those discussions and and figuring out how to uh essentially make two different things work together you might have to get some strings in there <laughs> yeah uh most likely <laughs> we will we will see what what uh what works and what doesn't i guess that i never really know until i sit down sometimes i'll I'll, you know, know that I'm going to be getting a, uh, you know, that first cut from a director, like, you know, on Monday or whatever. And I already have ideas in my head of, you know, what I'm going to do once I get it. And then I sit down, I import it into my software, I load up some sounds, start plinking away on the keyboard and nope, I'm doing something else. <laughs> like everything I thought, nah, I, I like this better. So, you know, you just never know. So another another quote about scoring from Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury. It's a great interview. I should send it to you. I'll send it I'll send it over email later. Nice. They they were talking about how they feel like scoring is good for them cuz it kind of creates structure like deadlines. And then um 
Uh, so they're talking about the difference between making a soundtrack and an album. And Jeff Barrow said, I found it easier. I think it's different when you're actually working on a picture. The idea of working to a time frame and edits and emotional changes um, kind of creates the structure for them. Hmm. Instead of just, you know, trying to create like a Portishead album where it's kind of more open for, you know, your ideas of what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, that's it. That's like going back to the Ex Machina score where we started out talking about like, you know, and, and any score really, but, you know, Ex Machina does it really well is, is knowing where to leave things silent and to just rest in that atmosphere, you know, it, and it's just so important to, to keep that in mind when scoring something. And so, yeah, you, you need the confines of the film to kind of dial it back a little bit. Yeah, and then to be totally thrown for a loop when orchestral maneuvers in the dark plays. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, like I love the juxtaposition of that where there's this choreographed dancing, but it is like the creepiest thing. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a great moment. Yeah, and that's kind of where, I mean, I think you get hints of like what's going to happen in the movie. And, you know, usually when someone compares themselves to playing God, they're probably going to die. But, you know, with Kyoko, the, um, I guess the other android, the previous model android, you kind Mm -hmm. of know something's off from the beginning, but then that kind of, you know, just breaks it all open for how how everything's going to go from there. Yeah. And instead of Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury having to create something to kind of break that tension, they use a uh, they use a different song. <laughs> it's like one of the few yeah, songs that are not from the actual score. Yeah, yeah, it's a little more upbeat, shall we say? <laughs> and that somehow makes it even like more terrifying. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this guy can be kind of so far gone in his little world he's created that he could just be, like, having fun on a Saturday night like that. And it just kind of makes his whole conversation with Caleb earlier in their film about why he created a gender for these androids even, like, more disgusting. (laughs) Yep, yep, absolutely. There's a a darkness throughout this that um, isn't necessarily shown but, um, you know, it, you get glimpses of it, but you can imagine so much more of it. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's like the moment where like the curtain is completely like pulled back and you're just like terrified about mm-hmm. connecting all the dots. Oh yeah. Yep. I was looking through, you know, what Jeff Barrow has uh, worked on, um, in addition to these soundtracks, because the last Portishead album was in 2008, so it's been a while since they've done anything. And I forgot that he did a remix for the Meow the Jewels album. <laughs> or do you remember that one? I, 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 I never actually heard it. Um, I remember when it came out, though. It is pretty unlistenable. <laughs> I'm sure they had fun making it. Yeah, though. I mean, I listened to it for like a week because, you know, the whole concept behind it was hilarious. And they got so many people to do remixes for that album. 
Like so many legitimate people made cat remixes for Run the Jewels, but it is <laughs> as unlistenable as you would expect. <laughs> I would make a cat remix. And I would probably listen to it. It would be fun. I actually have an album of uh, songs like folk rock, kind of folk rock that go into kind of indie rock um, songs about my dogs and cats that uh, it's it's been on the back burner to release for like years now. But one of these days I'm going to finish it and put it out. It's just like a fun little comedy novelty album. Oh, very cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's kind of a totally different side of my my music. So outside of the the, the electronic synth adjacent yes. um, instruments, what what other instruments do you play? Um, I I play uh, I play some guitar, but mainly mainly keyboard though. Um, the, the majority, like I would say, like eighty to ninety percent of anything happening in you know one of my pieces of music is uh, keyboard based uh, synth and uh, various kinds of software. Um, but I do play guitar on my tracks as well. Well, very cool, David. Um, very excited for these projects coming out. Yeah, I, I am too. I absolutely am too. You can check out David's music on all streaming platforms, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's it's on all of them under my name, David Rosen, and uh, and piecing it together is everywhere under piecing it together. I I put them on everything, and uh, you know you could find uh, my website is bydavidrosen.com, which kind of links to everything that I'm a part of, whether it's music or podcasting or film scoring or album producing or any of that kind of stuff. I do a lot of other stuff as well, so it's all there on that website. Yeah, I'm trying to. Uh... I'm trying to not tell people to listen to it on Spotify. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember not to say it myself. You know, it sucks, though, because, you know, just like uh, just, just like the Oscar Isaac character in Ex Machina, I mean, all these companies are terrible, you know? <laughs> so uh, Spotify is no good, but neither are the others that are the alternatives. So it's kind of like, what are you going to do at right. this point? And I don't want to do the whole, like, they're all bad, so don't don't care. <laughs> but yeah. it's also like, well, you're kind of, yeah. you're kind of picking, picking the... Uh, what the prettiest pig in the the pen? <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, worst case scenario, go to Bandcamp and buy my actual CDs. They're they're available, but uh, that's if you still have a CD player. Yeah, yeah. Support <laughs> support David by actually paying for his music. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> and people can check out piecing it together. Yeah, every everywhere there are podcasts, and our website is piecingpod.com and. Uh, I am very active on all the social medias, so uh, get in touch if uh, if you like what we do over there. Uh, I'm at PiecingPod on Twitter. Yeah, thank you so much, David, and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, I will get the courage to show up on your podcast sometime. I would love to have you sometime, definitely, and uh, I will. I'll send you uh, a clip once we finally get something going with this new film I'm working on. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, soundtrackyourlife.net.
subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.